Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out on the eve of a public holiday and spending your time with us. And uh, I just want to thank the Book Bar as well for being, for hosting us and, yeah, saying yes to Theo. Um, yeah, it's a huge honor to be here. Um, I, do I have national? I have one, I'll start with a National Day poem. Um, and I, th I think the general theme is I'll sort of do like Singapore icons or what I consider to be Singapore icons for the rest of the set. Um, this one is sort of uh, a very big memory I had from, from primary school. When you know how primary school, we always had those like National Day pageants and all these like students with no experience in performing just like went up, had to perform. Um, so we did that. And um, I still don't know how we like survived the, the ritual humiliation, but <laughs> it was actually quite fun. Um, so this is my poem, uh, The Esplanade and All of Us. Ode to every time you humiliated yourself on stage for the primary school National Day celebration auditions. Picture this, a teacher announces the name of our class. And then slowly, a tiny conga line of three or four eight-year-old girls, hands on each other's waists, squirming S's around a stage, like half a centipede with its head removed, and not quite understanding why its legs don't work. And then we start to sing. Hopping one wrong foot to another, sweating through our pinafores. There's no recorded music, no air con because it's 1996. Trying to sing, you could take a little trip around Singapore town on a Singapore city bus. Everyone a different beat, united in the belief that the faster we sang, the faster this would end. <laughs> because whose idea was it to walk around the stage instead of choreographing an actual dance? Except for the fact that we couldn't actually choreograph anything. But you can't be accused of singing off-key if no one can hear you. But what were we even thinking? School hall, freeze frame, booming silence. And then a teacher over the microphone. You see, girl, this is what happens when you don't put in the effort. <laughs> but it wasn't like our class ever won anything anyway. You should all be ashamed of yourselves. But they said that to us every day anyway. They said, after all, that they just needed anyone to volunteer. And afterwards, all we could remember was just the memory of laughing, laughing, laughing ourselves, breathless at us, at each other. How do you get away with it? How did the worst class get away with anything all the time? And for the solo category, my best friend, why would she do that? She had never sung in public before. All I remember is her voice drowned out in track six of the National Day 1996 cassettes. Singapura, oh Singapura, tiny island set in the sea. The occasional word from her lips gasping its head above the surface, so it just became tiny sea. And all we saw, her tiny pale body swaying out of time. Because you can't sing badly if you forget to hold the mic to your mouth. I still cannot hear that song without snorting. And then the teacher's voice saying, where is your self-respect? <laughs> where, where was our self-respect? We were nine years old. Did they think we did this for fun? Did they think that we chose to fail on purpose? All right. That's it. Thank you. Um, let's see. Okay, so this next one, um, I'm going to read from my phone first because it's running out of battery. Um, and this next one, let's see. It's a, okay, so this one, I kind of found this last minute. I haven't read this in a long time. I was, this was for a long ago exhibition, I think, called The Last Bookstore in the World. Anyone remembers this from like 2016 or something? 
2018. And um, they asked, I think I was asked to write about uh, my vision for Singapore, either Singapore or like an apocalypse in like a hundred, a thousand, like 500 years from now. Um, so this is my ideal vision of Singapore. Um, and it's also inspired by the time that the otters first like emerged and everyone was saying, oh no, they're taking over Singapore. Um, and I was like, good. Uh, <laughs> um, so this is the poem, Otter Catastrophe. Um, okay. No one remembers when they first arrived, hundreds of years before humans staggered onto this island. No one knows of the underwater cities they built here, hundreds of years before the native lions grew stripes and became namesakes, before the civets learnt to drink blood, before the coels sang the same song. The underground tunnels they built that rang, ran from Jurong to Changi long before we could spell underpass in English. And we don't remember why we left, but we remember when they returned. Their wet noses poking above the water, their long fingers holding half-eaten koi heads, their oily wet tails, the mysterious disappearances of Sentosa fish. We took pictures named their dynasties for the names we gave our streets and our bodies of water. When they fought battles, we stopped traffic for them, took videos, and somewhere, David Attenborough said something. <laughs> we didn't know that they were biding their time. Because how could we have known? After Singapore was drowned, burned to the ground, wiped out by killer bees, a solar flare, a nuclear spill, burnt to a crisp, they returned. They crawled out of the water after skyscrapers collapsed, set up shop first in sea aquarium finished off all the captive aquatic life and paid the pink dolphins off to form a mercenary navy, opened Marina Barrage to let them see the Singapore River for the first time, then headed for the forests, took over the central catchment reservoir, formed alliances with the macaques, trading fresh tilapia for durians, freed the trained otters in the zoos, taught them how to fish again, let the nature reserves grow wild to the spots of primary rainforest touch fingers, till the plants in the botanics and the gardens by the bay escaped till vines grew thick over concrete rebar skeletons of shopping malls, till all of Orchard Road was swallowed up in a thick layer of leaf litter and moss, and the beaches got reclaimed and re-reclaimed back again and sank back into the sea. And they waged war against the packs of roving mongrels in Ang Mo Kyo, then learned that they could travel faster if they learned how to ride them. They ran through the National Gallery, built burrows inside walls, raised families in hawker centres growing strong on rats, uncooked food and MSG, built community centers out of sticks and burnt out Bukatima mansions, chewed holes in koi ponds, released the fish into the drains and let them breed in the bays, dug a transport system of streams to get fresh fish 24 hours a day. And soon the whole island was bustling again with dense forests and highly intelligent otter types. They paid minor birds and salted egg tadpoles to spread the words of the great land. And then the sun bears and the Komodo dragons set sail in from the east. And the tigers and the fishing cats and the leopards and the fish eagles traveled down to the, from the peninsula to partake in the spoils of this great feast. And the animals came from near and far to gaze upon this island of plenty and success and said to one another, to think this mighty fishing village was once a sleepy human metropolis. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Okay, so this next one also kind of plant-like, um, plant-ish. It's about um, yeah, it's about plants and uh, Catholicism, I guess, and um, dialects. And so this is about the time during COVID when um, so our family is Catholic, and we started we started going to church, started watching the Archbishop on YouTube uh, because that's how I guess they spread the word. And then I I was the one who said that. So he had a really weird accent. Um, 
and I'd never heard it before. So um, this is how the poem starts. We got to the part of the mass where the archbishop does the homily, and I mentioned I'd never heard an accent like that before. My father said it was because the archbishop was Teochew and went to Montford, as if that was some kind of explanation. But isn't it funny to hear what the accent of your dialect group sounds like for the first time at 33? My father claims that he can tell if a person is Teochew and went to Catholic school and grew up in Aokang, in the, specifically in the 50s, based on how he pronounces certain words. Once, recently, an old woman came up to my father in a waiting room and said that she could tell that he was from Sarangoon from the way he spoke into his phone. And isn't it funny how accents evolve to fit districts, the way plants evolve into species, even on the tiniest of islands, to fit the hundreds of tiny landscapes they find, the forests, the swamps, and all the ones that disappeared long before they declared the first patch of forest here reserved. Once they had cleared all the Chinese squatters at the foot of Bukatima Hill, there is a picture of the church near my mother's childhood home by Hillview, started by a French priest who knew enough Teochew to preach sense into the squatters, and I am still told that this is a rough-sounding dialect, and how they only saved that forest because the rest of the country was on fire, soil sucked flammable by cash crops, and my mother tells the story of the lalang by the kampong behind her childhood bungalow, bursting into flames, and how it took the firemen three hours to put it out. Because when you rip out old roots and replace them with species that feast on everything left, the soil can take centuries to recover. My mother misses the atap roofs and the roosters behind the house, but still blames herself for marrying someone who grew up in an actual kampong. Our family's dirty secret is how my father only spoke Teochew until he turned seven. We still laugh at him when he says, calls boardwalk, broadwalk, calls the Olympics, Olympics. And I still call myself Teochew when I order the porridge. All right. Thank you. Um, okay. Help me. How, how much time do I have left? Okay. Hey, good. good. Um, let's see. I'll do I'll do this one. Um, at some point, I feel yeah. I'll do. Let's see. Yeah, I'll do this. I'll do a, a slightly longer poem. Um, speaking of like Singapore icons, and uh, this is who this this is for the 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 creature that I think that really does rule Singapore. Um, that is yeah. That I think does own Singapore um, more than the otters, more than anyone else. Can you can you guess? Shout out something? No, that, that's another poem. Um, that will come later, I think. Uh, any other ideas? Other suggestions? Mosquitoes close. Yes. Actually, they rule these creatures. They rule mosquitoes. They're more powerful than mosquitoes. Lizards. Yes, lizards. Mm -hmm. So this is about uh, house lizards. It's a poem called Chichak. Um, but it's actually more about this is when I thought I was wanted to write like a book of nature poetry. Then I thought like, oh, I should start with like the animals nearest to me, and it was like lizards. And so I wrote this poem. And I was like, it's a cool poem, and I never wrote another one for that collection. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's about teachers, but it's actually also really about humans, I think, and how humans feel about them. Um, maybe a warning, if you're scared of lizards, uh, you might get upset, I guess. Because <laughs> um, it's really an analysis of fear. Okay, Chicha. The scariest message you will ever receive from a girlfriend is my worst nightmare has come true and then no further messages for the rest of the night, leaving you to wonder for the next seven hours, is she dying? Is she dead? Is she lying in a pool of blood in the middle of a forest? In the morning, she turns her phone on again, and her data starts working, and the photo finishes sending. 
It's a picture of a tiny lizard on the bathroom wall next to her sink. Why does the common house gecko terrify us? Maybe it's because once you add the word house to the name of an animal, it becomes 100% more of a menace. So think about it. House mouse, house fly, house fire. Is it the lizard's tiny fingers, the four of them always splayed out? Like they could give you a tiny slap if they wanted. Like they could hold a tiny frying pan, hands covered in tiny suction cups, the way they defy gravity and logic. How our brains know that reindeer cannot fly, that humans cannot walk on water, that reptiles should not be walking on the ceiling. Any day now, we know logic will prevail, that they will fall off, then the ceiling will start raining lizards. They will fall on your face, your eyes, your open sleeping mouth. What then? Who is to say they aren't already doing this? After all, we know that humans already swallow seven spiders a year in their sleep. For all we know, we could be swallowing two lizards a year in our sleep. You have to imagine then what that would feel like. How we talk about the way they move, the wriggle, half snake, half cockroach, fighting its way around a mouth, into a throat, out of the throat, the same thing. Would it scream and thrash as it went down an esophagus? Would it still be twitching and wriggling as it fell into the stomach? Is it the skin? Is it the lizard's skin? Would it feel dry or slimy when it touched you? Or does it not matter? Does texture matter at all if all you feel is movement? Is movement texture? Is the way each gecko is so filled with movement that their tails just keep moving even after they're cut off? Our brains tell us that that's not right. How lizards are just constantly wriggling, wriggling like worms with legs, with worms with legs, each leg with its own legs, each finger wriggling on its own. And closer you get to the skin, the more transparent it gets. Get too close, say if a lizard is right in your face, about to crawl inside you, you catch a glimpse of it. But it's not just the lizard you see, because you see its skin up close, and you realize it's more of a film, a translucent film, and you can see inside its organs. Why, why, why? Why can you see its organs? Why can you see its bleeding heart? its arteries, blood vessels, its stomach, digesting the insect it just swallowed. But you won't get that close. No, the most likely. No, because the skin from a distance is creepy enough. Because it's the color of human skin. And perhaps this is what terrifies us most about geckos. How they remind us of us. Hairless, pale, naked variations with no feature, human facial features or genitals. Just stretched out, half alien humanoid, Babies with no fat, with long tongues crawling across our walls. And our brains tell us, this is messed up. This is not right. So we are left staring at hundreds of tiny hyperactive versions of ourselves. So full of movement, we can't even keep our tailbones on. Running up and down the sides of our bedrooms. Look at us, look at us, on the top of the evolutionary ladder. Conquered and forced dominion over every last piece of land, air, sea we can. Able to build roofs and walls and keep out every storm and heat wave imaginable, but unable even to seek sanctuary in the coziness of our own beds, without unable to open our eyes and stare at our own ceilings without terror. See, it's always been Chichak land. We're just living in it. Okay. So this one. Okay. So now, if you mention it, I will. I will do a Merlion poem. Um, it feels necessary for National Day. Um, uh, no, it's, it's a very serious poem. Um, it's on, to honor a lot of the poets that come before me um, who've written uh, much better Merlion poems. Um, so part of it is sort of like making a collage of their pieces. Um, and, and yeah, and I mean, there's a, there's a, 
there's a funny phrase of like, there's some saying in the poetry scene that you can't be a real uh, English language poet until you've written a Merlion poem. <laughs> so this was my attempt. And um, yeah, sort of to honor a great national icon. The Merlion poem. You emerged from the sea, claws gripping shoreline, scales iridescent in sunlight, back arching, rising, thrashing out of waves, droplets of salt water cascading off your shiny muscular torso. How you shook your magnificent head from side to side, like a dog after a bath, but in slow motion, because you are too dignified to do it otherwise. Oh, Merlion, now you perch, how you balance. How do you balance for all those hours on that thick muscular tail, head held so high over the river that brought you to this land before you crawled out of it with such dignity and realized that you couldn't breathe outside of water. Gills snapped shut, you lost your life at the mouth of Singapore River. And people covered you in concrete, the way we cover everything in concrete in this country and made you a monument to interspecies relationships. Oh, Merlion, how you sacrificed yourself for us, throwing yourself at the feet of our great nation, preserved for eternity. Oh, Merlion, I've never felt like this before. I've never felt like this about any animal before. But you are so much more than animal. Oh, Merlion, sometimes you make me want to touch your scales with my fingers and tell you that it's okay. Everybody loves you now. Oh, Merlion, you make me want to do a call and response. When I say mer, you say lion. That's right. Mer. Lion. Mer. Lion. When I say lion, you say mer, lion. Mer. Lion. Mer. That's the evil brother of the mer lion. <laughs> um, oh, mer lion, sometimes I wish you had paws, though then you could hug people. Then you could hold me as I've always dreamed of holding you in my minuscule arms that cannot even encircle your whole upper body. If you had paws, you would probably hold uh, uh, Chris. I'm not entirely sure what a Chris is but it sounds relevant to this poem. <laughs> Actually, it sounds a bit dangerous, but it's okay, Merlion, because I like danger. You can hold it to my throat while I stroke your glorious mane and lick your soft ear and tell you, it's okay, Merlion. You are big and strong and beautiful and everybody loves you. And then I'll unsheath my own Chris and plunge it into you while you cry out in a unique and exotic roar that sounds somewhere between a lion's mating call and a dolphin's click. I want to ride you, Merlion, the way your lion father must have ridden your fish mother. <laughs> I will want to ride you, Merlion, the way no one has ever ridden you before or ever. I will ride you wildly through the oceans of progress. I want to ride you, Merlion, the way Simba would ride Flipper. <laughs> the way Mufasa would ride Nemo. The way Free Willy would ride Simba's mother, whose name I cannot remember. <laughs> but I will not, Merlion because that would be very painful for me. Because you are covered in concrete, like everything else in this country. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you for your attention. Um, I'm on the last poem. I'll do one from this book. Uh, so this, if you like my stuff, get my book. Um, we are selling, I've just brought some here to sell and support the bookstore as well. Um, there's not a lot of them left. Uh, so yeah, do get them. This one is for my grandfather, who, um, yeah, sort of inspired by the time that I did an interview with him and just like learned about his life and the various like stories. Um, he passed away a couple years ago. And uh, so yeah, this poem has more, a bit more significance for me. 
um, yeah, some of the things that he did was that were like he was, um, yeah, he was in university in like the 50s. He saw a lot of like political uh, stuff going down. He had friends who were activists. He wrote for the Straits Times for a while. Um, and, and yeah, so he just did a lot of stuff that I had no idea about until I interviewed him. Um, yeah, so, so this is for him. It's called the Kong Kong Tone. My grandfather, Kong Kong, used to complain when I brought storybooks to his house. He would tell me, stop wasting your time reading other people's words. Go write the stories yourself. My grandfather's first job was a cub reporter. When there wasn't enough news to report, they would let him make stuff up. He's most proud of the stories he wrote about this mysterious figure they called the Oily Man, a half-man creature who allegedly ran amok in the streets, body covered in grease so no one could catch him. My grandfather woke up in the 50s to British soldiers dragging away his roommate at university who wrote for a communist newspaper called Fajra. He claims he wasn't involved. He just lent him his car and drove him around sometimes to spread it around. But you could say my grandfather made good in the end, got himself a flat screen country club membership, four kids and a massage chair. Today, he mostly watches the stock market on TV, escaping at night to ride buses around the city. But sometimes I think Hong Kong is only pretending to be a regular guy, sitting in front of the TV, blind in one eye. Maybe that's how he got the job with the newspaper. Maybe he set up cameras around Singapore, shot pictures of himself running around the city, grease trickling down his back. Maybe he first kissed my grandmother like that, hanging upside down, dripping off the side of a building. I imagine him slipping out at midnight, running around darkened alleys with other oily men, ripping underwear off washing lines, howling into the moonlight, throwing wild, greasy parties in abandoned car parks. Perhaps this is what he really does at night. But this morning, my grandfather's hands are too shaky to put drops in his eyes. As I help him, he reminds me of one thing, to never feel any pity for him. Remember, he tells me, one day you too will end up like this. See, my Kong Kong, he's lived long enough to understand that those who stay alive long enough will all come to the same end. The best of themselves distilled into stories for the grandchildren, part complaint, part fiction. To understand how all leaders are messed up, but you work with what you can, how the stock market always crash and rise again, and how at some point, every time you leave your house, the cityscape will have changed again. But there will always be a side of you your grandchildren will never understand, like that puddle of oil at the foot of your massage chair, or how you slid right out of that soldier's hands. Thank you. Thank you to the book bar. All the great. Thank you.